Well, I want us to start with the parable of, you might say the parable of the vineyard, or you might say the parable of the tenants. It's Matthew 21, starting at verse 33. Um, sometimes you forget about these parables. Jesus told lots of parables, and uh, you can remember some of them off the top of your head, I'm sure. And this is one of those that maybe you don't remember, but it goes so perfectly with the passage tonight that I just thought we have to start here. We have to start with this parable and start with the words of Jesus. And so I just want to read to us verses 33 to the end to hear this parable from our Savior. Matthew 21, verse 33. The ESV starts this way. Hear another parable. I like that. (laughs) Listen up. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So what we've seen in this parable and what we're going to see tonight in the book of 1 Peter is that there are two building projects happening in the world. Two. And I know you're thinking, there are a lot of building projects happening because you just drive around this valley for five minutes and you see dozens, right? But spiritually speaking, there are two building projects going on in the world. And there's a big stone, and for our purposes this evening, I'll um, make this stone in the shape of a cross. (laughs) There's a stone that can be used for building, and on one side of this, you have the world. And they look at this stone, and what do they make of that stone as they do their building project? They look at that stone, and is that stone fit for building? <laughs> no. The answer is no. Okay? No. The world looks at that stone and they say, ah, it's misshapen. It's, it'll never work. 
It's, it's wrong. Nothing about it's right. It'll never work. And then you have, on the other hand, the church. Okay? And when I say the church, I'm talking about the universal church. Um, you can say the invisible church. All believers around the world, not just our local church, but all believers around the world. So they're not of the world. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. They're the church. And what do they think of this stone? Yeah, perfect. We're going to learn some words tonight. Um, I shouldn't use red. I used red over there. Let's see. What can I use? I'll use blue. Um, we're going to learn some words like precious, valuable, choice. These are the words that the church uses when it looks at this stone. The world, of course, rejects. And that we'll see that very clearly in the text tonight. The world rejects that stone. And so they come to the stone and then they walk away because that stone is no good. But the church, they come to the stone and they come and they're right there. They stay there. They find themselves in Him, Christ, the cornerstone. Believers are living stones built up in Christ, the precious cornerstone. These are the two building projects that are happening in the world today. And we see it all over, all the time. You've got the world who rejects Christ and the church who is built on Christ. Built on Christ. He's precious. He's valuable. He is chosen. He's a choice stone. So let's look at our text in 1 Peter, and I think you'll see this just immediately as we read the text. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 8 this evening. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 8, and I'll read that for us. It says, starting in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now that is quite a passage, isn't it? Quite a passage. So let's uh, start by looking at the church and the church's relationship with this cornerstone. And uh, if there's time tonight, we'll talk about the world's relationship with the cornerstone. You see in verse 4 that there's an action. What's the action on the part of believers with the cornerstone? First thing you see. Going to him. Yeah, as you come to him. And this is a foundational component of the Christian faith. You've heard people talk about, oh, he had a come-to-Jesus moment, right? You've heard that. 
usually said in a weird context or a bad context, a very flippant phrase. Uh, but when we think really about biblical terms and what happens biblically when someone believes, you, you come to Jesus. That's how you get saved. And over and over and over again in your life, your life is made up of what? Just going right back to Jesus, right? Your life is coming to Him, it says, who is a living stone. Now, it's interesting because these believers, of course, uh, had no opportunity to go to Jesus physically. Um, they didn't live in the same area as Jesus, it doesn't seem. The timing wouldn't be right. They had no opportunity to physically find themselves at the feet of Jesus, as many people did in the Gospels. So this is, of course, a spiritual phrase, coming to Him spiritually. This is a disposition toward Him in both our salvation and our sanctification. Hebrews 12.2. Let's see if any of you can just be real sharp with your Bible memory here. Hebrews 12.2. It starts off in um, verse 1, talking about a great cloud of witnesses and laying aside every weight and hindrance that so easily ensnares us. Because we go to Jesus, He is the what and what? Yeah, the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith. So, as we live the Christian life, it's not just in our salvation, it's as we live the Christian life, laying aside all those things that so easily trip us up, all those little uh, stumbling stones of sin. We set those aside, lay them aside for the sake of coming to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. The Alpha and Omega, isn't he? Uh, that is what the Christian life is. So, it's stated here, just kind of taking it for granted as a fact, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And that's how believers see Jesus, is chosen or choice. The New American Standard says choice, but really chosen is better. That's in the NIV and the ESV and King James, they all say chosen. Uh, it's hearkening back to the thought that Peter shared with us in chapter 1, verse 20. Just look up a few verses there, where it says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And as we covered that a few weeks ago, foreknown. Foreknown by who? Well, foreknown by the Father, of course. Jesus was foreknown. He had relationship with the Father, and He's been made manifest in these last times for our sake. So as we come to Him, we see Him as He is, the one who has been in relationship with the Father from all eternity. He's chosen. He's choice. He's fit for the task. And He's not just chosen, but what's the other adjective used there in verse 4? Precious. I love that word, precious. Sometimes I'll call my daughter precious. Hey, precious. But this is the most precious. This means the highest regard. We see Jesus in the highest regard. We think of the highest terms. He has the utmost honor in our minds. Jesus does. He should. One of the first uh, quotes I ever memorized from our pastor in Kansas City, in a sermon he was preaching, he said, you can never think too highly of Jesus Christ. I just always loved that quote. You can never think too highly of Jesus Christ. And when we come to him as one who is chosen and precious, that's the idea. We have this view of Jesus, that he gets the best seat in the house. He's front and center, isn't he, in all that we do. 
This word for precious, it's actually used by Jesus in one of his uh, teachings. Remember when he was telling his disciples about when you get invited to a feast and they say, come sit in the nicest place, you know, hey, just, you know, have your seat in the back and there might be someone uh, more precious who shows up. That's the same word there, precious, more precious (laughs) than you. We like to think of ourselves as pretty precious. So it's good to be checked that there are people who are more precious than us. And of course, in these terms, Jesus is the most precious. He's chosen and precious, and he's also rejected. We see that here. Again, we're going to get to the world's relationship with Christ in the second half of this lesson, but he's rejected. And what Peter is doing here is he's starting something very interesting that's going to continue throughout the letter. He's making a correlation between Jesus and Jesus' people, between Jesus and the church. Because, did you know that in God's sight, because of his infinite grace and kindness, not because of anything of our own, you are chosen and you are precious? He sings over you. And did you know, too, that you're rejected by men? And this is a thread that's going to run through the rest of 1 Peter, that he, as Jesus is chosen and precious and rejected by the world, that's your life too. Because you are one with Christ, because you've been unified with Christ, you've been united to him by faith, you're sharing in this life in that you do have life, you have life eternal, you have the perfect relationship with God, it could never be improved. And yet you're going to suffer, and you're going to be rejected. And Jesus taught this too, didn't he? Don't be surprised when what? Do you remember? Don't be surprised when the world hates you. They hated me, they will hate you also. Peter was right there for those lessons, wasn't he? And he's been living it for decades now when he writes this letter. And he's writing to people who are living where? Asia Minor. Because they're from there? Why are they there? Because the world hates them. (laughs) They've been rejected. They've been rejected by men. There they were. They had their home, and they were rejected, even though they're chosen by God. And this goes all the way back to verse 1 of the letter. This is how Peter opened it. You were elect. You were chosen. But they're also rejected by men. Isn't that amazing? Thoughts on that before we move on to the temple illustration that Peter presents here. Thoughts or questions? Yeah, the prosperity gospel is false from the start. And it's so easily shot down. I mean, who is, using the word for this evening, who's the most precious human being that's ever walked the earth? Yeah. And what happened to him? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what was his address? Where would, you, where would you mail Jesus a letter if you were living that day, Right? The foxes have holes, birds have nests. And there he was in the garden. Not my will, but your will. And God's will was for him to be crushed, Isaiah 53. Prosperity gospel has no legs to stand on, does it? And uh, the reason why it's caught on is because we so want to escape suffering. It's wired in us to do that. And any kind of message that says, look, 
you can escape this thing you don't want because God will just do whatever you ask him to do if you do it in this way with this much faith, yada, yada, yada. It sounds appealing to many people, but if you know the word of God, if you've studied your Bible, you'll say, that's crazy. My Savior suffered, bled, and died. Why should I have any, any better off? Why should it be better for me? Okay, and that's Peter's heart. We're going to see it, especially at the end of this chapter. Uh, he really drives that home. And Peter's presenting to us a, a picture of a temple, the stone illustration. We are living stones. Jesus is the cornerstone, okay? And that's, of course, what we were illustrating here at the start. Jesus is the cornerstone. And Peter's using the picture of a temple to illustrate what happens through all of this. Uh, living stones kind of seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It's a nice last name. I think it's a cool last name, Mr. Livingstone or Dr. Livingstone. <laughs> Uh, but when we think about the actual noun, there's no such thing as a living stone. That's why Jesus' uh, proclamation that these stones will cry out was so effective, right? Because stones aren't living, they're just dead things. But we are living stones. That's really curious. What, what are your thoughts on that as we begin to break down this illustration, understand this illustration? What does it mean that we are living stones? Okay, right? Yeah. With what life? Mm. That's it. Wasn't that long ago you taught through, you guys taught through Romans 6, right, Dean, here in this Sunday school class? <laughs> well, Romans 6 was one of my first favorite chapters of the Bible. Because with Christ, we were buried with him in baptism, and then we were raised to newness of life. Whose life? Well, Jesus' life. We're identified with Christ when we believe. And there's this baptism that takes place, the washing and regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, and we're identified with Christ. There's newness of life from that point forward, right? We're identified with Him. And that's, of course, the picture of physical baptism. We go down into the water and we come back up. We are raised from the dead with Christ newness of life. We were just dead stones. Now we're living stones being used to build up this church. We're material that God uses to build His church. And if you can think back to Matthew 16, Peter's great confession, when Jesus is asking, who, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter says, what, what did he say? You remember? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Peter, or what did Jesus say to Peter? Right, yeah. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Good. But the Father has revealed it to him. And then he went on to say, and on this I will. Good. And that word for Peter is the word for rock or stone. And now Peter's talking about stones being used to build up the church. And this is just a side note, but it is an important note. If you ever get talking to somebody about Peter's authority being the first pope or there being early church authority and he was the president of a church or whatever, this would have been a very key moment for Peter to say, you all are living stones. And as Jesus told me, I am the one on which the church is built. He singled me out and that's how this whole thing got started was through me. But notice 
in our passage tonight, Peter says nothing about himself. So that's something to keep in the back of your head when you're having those conversations. Peter doesn't highlight himself at all. But he says, you all, you're you're coming to him and you're the stones. (laughs) The living stones that God is using, building his church. You're being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, it says there in verse 5. And of course, we're not the only living stones being spoken of here. Verse 4 Jesus is called a living stone rejected by men. Jesus is not some theory. He's not some doctrine. But Jesus is alive, and he's the foundation that imparts life to the spiritual house. We're built on him as the cornerstone, and he imparts life to the rest of the house. He's the head of the body, and he's the author of life. He imparts that life to us, making us living stones. We've been given life from Jesus. And an amazing reality being taught here, too, is that we are the parts of the temple being built. There is no more physical temple. No more physical temple. You know, God only commanded there be one temple. It was the one in Jerusalem. And this was a type, a foreshadow of Christ. Christ coming, and when he died, and the veil was torn in two, fulfilling these types and shadows. And now, we don't look to a physical temple. We are the temple. We are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, God's temple is a temple made of people, made up of redeemed souls, redeemed human beings. We're not some organization, some group collective that's sent to a physical place to go perform rituals and ceremonies. We're not going to a physical temple like in the Old Covenant. We are the temple, the living stones being brought together as a spiritual house. And furthermore, we're not just the house, we're inside the house because it says we're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Where did the priests go to perform their ceremonies? Into the temple. So we are the temple and we're the priesthood. (laughs) This is kind of crazy. But it's kind of amazing too, isn't it? We're a temple, we're a spiritual house, and Jesus is the cornerstone. We are built on Him, we are built in Him, we are built through Him, we are built by Him. You see all this, all this coming together in verse 6, it stands in Scripture. I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame, will not be disappointed. Jesus is the cornerstone for this spiritual temple. And the word is actually corner in the Greek. It's just one word. It's the word corner. There's no word that's cornerstone as one word. It's just the word corner, uh, which is interesting. I didn't know that before today. I had missed that in all my previous studies. And it's just, it's the alignment reference for the rest of the building. You set the cornerstone first and it sets the alignment for everything else that's going to happen. And that's what Jesus is for the church for the new spiritual temple. He's our guide. He's our navigator. He's the one who, he's the captain. He's the capital A apostle. These are the words that you get from the book of Hebrews where it talks about Jesus fulfilled the temple. He fulfilled the priesthood. He fulfilled all these things. And he is the cornerstone of the church. This is Jesus's church. It's all about his righteousness, isn't it? As the cornerstone, he's the one who's our standard for all things. He's our standard of perfection. 
And he just is making much of himself through the church. We are brought into a new house as living stones. We are God's people now. And we're here to proclaim his excellencies. It says in verse 5 again, we're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And if you look down at verse uh, 9 that we'll look at next week, that he has made us for this purpose that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And this is God's great mercy and grace in the gospel, isn't it? That he would do this. He would put us in his family, that he would make us a people who were not a people before. That he came as the cornerstone for the church, but for the world who rejected him, he was a stumbling stone. <laughs> they looked at him as they were, they had their agenda of what they were building, and they looked at that stone and they said, that won't work. He doesn't fit with our agenda. And yet, the church, chosen and precious by God, we see Christ as precious, valuable, and choice. And we are in Him, being built up through Him and by Him, as He's building His church, establishing His church on the face of the earth. So amazing. I want to touch on one more thing before I pause for some questions, but... Uh, Think about, think about the priesthood again, and we're going to get into this more next week. It's more explicit in verse 9. But again in verse 5 where it says that we're the spiritual house, we're also the holy priesthood. And I want us to just see in this text the priesthood of all believers. This is a foundational doctrine of the Protestant faith. This is one of the major splits from Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism set up priests who were mediators between the people and God. They had a special class. They had a special access to God. Well, the Bible teaches that every believer is a priest. You are a holy priesthood, man, woman, and child. If you are in Christ, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. It's a core doctrine of Christianity. We are brought into this spiritual house to serve as spiritual priests, every single one of us. And I want to read to you a, a quote from J.V. Fesco. He's a dean at Westminster Theological Seminary. It's, it's a paragraph, so hang in there. But listen to these words. He does a great job summing this up. He says, In contrast to the beliefs of the medieval church, the Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of all believers holds that there is no longer a priestly class of people within God's people, but that all believers share in Christ's priestly status by virtue of their union with Christ. Although there was a select group of priests in the Old Testament who mediated the knowledge, presence, and forgiveness of God to the rest of Israel, Christ has come and fulfilled the priestly role through his life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, Christ was the final priestly mediator between God and his people, and Christians share that role through him. This means that Christians are not dependent upon the priests within the church to interpret Scripture for them or affect God's blessing of forgiveness for them. All Christians are equally priests through Christ and stand upon the same ground before the cross." This does not mean that we should do away with the pastoral or ministerial authorities. 
While those authorities are a part of the way that God blesses His church with instruction and sound doctrine, those with churchly authority need the rest of the body just as much as they need them. It's a line that we've heard so many times, of course. It's not original to Him. But we stand upon the same ground before the cross. And we are all a part of this priesthood if we are believers in Christ. It's a very important reality to embrace. It affects a lot of conversations, especially around here, because there are priesthood holders around here, right? Well, here it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, you come to him to be a holy priesthood. And that you is inclusive of the church. It's not written to just a select group of people. Look back at chapter 5 with me. 1 Peter 5, he singles out the elders among them. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you. And he goes on to exhort them. And then he says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So he's talking to the elders when he singles them out, and he's talking to the younger ones to be subject to the elders. But we don't see him designating any class of people in chapter 2 when he talks about a priesthood, does he? He doesn't say, you elders came to him to be a holy priesthood. He doesn't say, you men came to him to be a holy priesthood. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say, you qualified men above the age of this, who have done these ordinances, who have done this, yada, yada, yada. None of that. This is an undesignated except for you're a part of the church through faith in Christ. You are a holy priesthood. God has made you a holy priesthood. And our role in that priesthood is to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Can I get someone to grab Romans 12, 1 and 2? Who can get Romans 12, 1 and 2? Joseph. And then Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Who can get that? Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. Okay, Jen, good deal. So as we think about we are a priesthood, and it's not like, okay, you're a priesthood now, that means you don't do anything because it's, it's redefined and you don't have any duties. There, there's, there are duties set before us as priests to God. There are things to do, aren't there? <laughs> and we find in the New Testament our instruction as priests to God, what we are to do. So Romans 12, 1 and 2. Go ahead, Joseph. Okay, so Joseph, in that text, as you think about we are priests, what's the sacrifice that we're called to make? It says that we're called to make sacrifices. What's our sacrifice? Okay, what are we presenting? Yeah. So you think about in the Old, old Covenant, the priests, the you know, down descended from Levi, they're taking in the goat, they're taking in the bull, whatever it is, they kill it, lots of blood everywhere, Stuff is on fire over and over again. That's what they're doing. So you are priests. You're called to make sacrifices, but we don't have like a petting zoo out there so each Sunday we can pull a pet out. And <laughs> Sorry, Joseph. A goat. Plug your ears, Joseph. Uh, <laughs> so we're not, we're not killing any sheep or anything like that, okay? Um, so it's like, okay, well, that's good. 
We don't have to go through all the effort of like having animals and killing animals and doing all that. But actually what we're called to is much higher, isn't it? It would be pretty easy just to find an animal and kill an animal once a year, a few times a year, whatever. This is day by day offering your life as a living sacrifice. You're a living stone and you're a priesthood. (laughs) Now go offer your life as a sacrifice. We get the same sentiment in Hebrews 13. So verses 15 and 16, if you would. Right. There you go. There's some more information, you priests. What kind of sacrifices are you to make? Well, the sacrifice of praise, offering up thanksgiving to God in all circumstances and sharing with what you have. This is what's pleasing to God. It's a life. It's not an event. You're not a priest for an event. You're a priest to serve God with your life day by day. And it's there in Hebrews 13, and it's also in our text tonight, How are these sacrifices acceptable to God? What does it say in both of those texts, Hebrews 13 and in 1 Peter 2? How are they acceptable? Through Jesus Christ. Does God accept any other sacrifices? Can you be in this camp here and offer any sort of acceptable sacrifice to God? There's a hard break there, isn't it? It's not, it's not like a fade. It's not like a spectrum that there's like a fade where, well, there are some people that are close and he appreciates what they do and it kind of fades away the further away you get. No, there's a hard break. Because what we're seeing in the text tonight is you either do this where you come to him and you are in him and you view him this way. You're in the church. You're in Christ. You see him as precious, valuable, and choice. Or you're here and you reject Christ. And there is no third option. There is no in-between. There is no middle. There's no one foot in, one foot out. There is a hard break on what you do with the cornerstone. Whether you come to the cornerstone and see it as the perfect stone for building or you reject it because it's worthless in your sight. Those are the only two options. Only two. Peter sees no other option. And by believing in Christ, those who are in the church, we're told, back in our text tonight, verse 6, we will not be put to shame. We will not be disappointed. We will not be dishonored. And he goes on in verse 7 to talk about this as honorable. The fact that we will not be disappointed is an honor for you. This honor is for you. That culture When you think about the uh, culture that Peter was in, it was an honor and shame culture. I took a missions class in Bible college, and the man who was teaching it uh, had been a missionary in Asia. And he was telling our class, who were all Americans, I believe, how we are a very um, justice-oriented culture. Guilty, innocent is how we think through things. And, of course, the Bible presents those categories in a variety of places. But the Bible also presents honor and shame. And we're a lot less familiar with that here. It does happen. You get people who are the black sheep of the family and they're dishonored, etc. But someplace like China or Japan, it's very serious over there, whether you're honored or shamed. And here, uh, Peter is writing to his audience, 
saying that though they've been shamed by the world, they've been rejected by the world, their culture has utterly shamed them. They're the scum of the earth in their generation. In God's sight, they will never be put to shame. God will never put them to shame. They'll never be disappointed. God has honored them. Because we are united to Christ, we're also precious, valuable, and choice because of what God has done in us. Isn't that such an encouragement for people who have been displaced because of persecution? Amazing. Okay, let's pause there and see if there are any thoughts or questions. I just love this text. Go ahead, Joseph. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a fair correlation, I think. It could, depending on how far you carry that out and how you want to employ details, that could get strange, but yeah. But, but the, it, it's, sorry, it's imagery that is used in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 7, he's our great high priest, yes, yeah. Hmm. Gotcha, yeah. So, a study on the genealogy of Jesus is in order for you. Uh, I can hook you up with some material on that, because that, that's a, a much bigger topic, a much broader topic, and I can get you some resources on that. Yeah, good. What else? You like this passage as much as I do? <laughs> it's good. Well, we might get through the whole lesson then if we're not going to have questions. That's all right. The pizza made you docile. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully it's clear our relationship to Jesus as the cornerstone. We're being built up in Christ. But now let's focus on the terms that we get from our text tonight when we think about the world's relationship with Jesus. Because we come to Jesus... We embrace Jesus. We hold on to Jesus. This is God's doing in and through us. But non-believers, they don't do any of that. They stumble over Jesus. The world sees him as a stumbling stone. So there are five aspects to this reality. And let's start in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1 again, with that word, rejected. You come to him, a living stone, rejected by men. That word for reject is... Though it's just the same way we use it today. It means to disapprove of, disapprove or even repudiate. That's a pretty strong word, but it's the same sense. The world repudiates Christ. And what I find very interesting about um, what Peter's quoting here, you see in uh, verse 6, he's quoting Isaiah 28. And this is what Jesus quoted in Matthew 21, that parable we read at the start. It's the same verse. And as you have this imagery set forth, starting in the Gospels and then carried through to Peter's day, every time it was used up until this point, it was talking about the religious Jews. The religious Jews were the ones who rejected Christ. Because you think, okay, the world rejects Christ, that makes sense. You've got the people who are the, the drug addicts that don't want anything to do with Jesus, the criminals, you know, the real pagan people who are just real worldly the Bible, though, uses this idea of rejecting the cornerstone of the Jews. And you remember that parable that we read in Matthew 21. Jesus was talking about 
how the owner of the vineyard, he sent his three uh, stewards there, and they messed them up. And then he sent more, and they messed them up. These are the prophets. God was sending the prophets to Israel, and they were stoning the prophets, killing the prophets, rejecting the prophets. And so the owner says, I'll send my son. And of course, God sent his son. And he too was rejected and killed because even though he's the cornerstone, you read down in verse 7, he's the stone that the builders rejected. They're building. They are building their agenda and they rejected the cornerstone. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's how religious people viewed their Messiah. (laughs) That's how God's people viewed their Savior. They rejected Him. They repudiated Him. And so it doesn't matter how religious someone says He is or how faithful to this or that movement. And even if they claim the name of Jesus, it doesn't matter which Jesus. And what does it mean that you've embraced Him or that you claim Him? What does that even mean? Because if those things are either misunderstood or intentionally twisted, they are in the camp with everyone else as rejecting the cornerstone, just as the nation of Israel did. And of course, Peter's audience would certainly be able to relate to this. They were feeling each and every day utter rejection by the world. Peter now expands the idea of those who have rejected Christ from the Jews to the whole world. You see, in, again in verse 5, He doesn't put a classification on who rejects him. He just says, rejected by men. And he's talking about the culture at large. And that's what his readers were experiencing. They were rejected by the world. And again, there are just two options. When it comes to the cornerstone, when it comes to Jesus, you come to him as precious or you utterly, thoroughly reject him. Those are the only two options. I want to read to you a quote from a guy with a really cool name, Leonard Goppelt. (laughs) You're thinking, I'm glad that's not my name. (laughs) Leonard Goppelt. He said, Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. What What a great sentence. In the encounter with him, each person is changed. One for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass Him by to build a future. Whoever encounters Him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. That's a really good commentary. And that's what Peter's presenting here. Two options, that's it. And they stumble. Verse 8. Here again, he's quoting from the Old Testament. Again, quoting from Isaiah. The builders have rejected the stone that has become the cornerstone, and he is a stone of stumbling. He is a rock of offense. So they stumble. Jesus is an obstacle to these people. He's an obstacle. And again, this is even the religious people. They have their own agenda. And Jesus coming along with the message of grace, he's an obstacle to their self-righteousness, isn't he? They're not looking to be a part of the spiritual house built on the righteousness of another. 
They're looking to build their own house on the foundation of their own righteousness. And so Jesus is this obstacle. He's in the way. You got to get the real Jesus out of the way. Give me the fake Jesus. The fake Jesus that tells me it's all about me. And of course, the world that isn't religious, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. They don't want anything to do with religion. They don't want anything to do with God. He's an obstacle. And now think about this, because we're going to get into some weird territory at the end of this passage. I'm going to leave, leave you tonight with weird thoughts that you'll have to just fall asleep on. But think about this. Did God know that this would be an obstacle to them? Yeah. Anytime I ask a question, did God know, the answer is yes. All right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Did God know? Yes, of course he did. He knew that this would be an obstacle. He knew that Jesus would be a stumbling stone to some and a cornerstone to others. He knew it. And he put it in their path that they inevitably have to encounter Jesus. And for the world, they inevitably have to stumble. It's an interesting thought. He sent Christ as the cornerstone for his church. He sent Christ as the obstacle for the world. Same time, same person, two different effects on these different groups of people. And he's really showing there are just two demographics, right? The church and the world. Believers who are in Christ and those who reject him, who are outside of him. Those are the only two demographics in the entire world. They stumble over him and they're offended by him. You see that in verse 8? He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The word here for offense is scandalous. They see Jesus as scandalous contrary to how they think he should be. And you see this over and over again in the Gospels. The religious people come to Jesus with an understanding of what the Messiah should be, how Jesus should act. If you really are the one who is from God, this is what you should say. This is what the prophet would do. It's scandalous you would do anything else. Scandalous in the eyes of men with their own debased thoughts. Instead of being changed, by His grace and truth, they are offended by His grace and truth, aren't they? That is how the world interprets Jesus. They reject Him. They stumble over Him. They're offended by Him. Fourthly, the fourth thing we see, again in verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the Word. They're disobedient to the Word of God. This is the cause of their stumbling, that they're disobedient. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Stay here in 1 Peter. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Peter uses this phrase in two other places in his letter. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. Turn to the next chapter. Chapter 4, verse 17, a very important theme and teaching in this letter. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So you see this idea of obedience or disobedience to the word has to do with what you do with the gospel. Do you believe, do you submit to the truth of the gospel, or do you reject the gospel? It's not a list of works that's given to us. Because you disobey this list of works, 
well then, you can't have Christ because you're not, you haven't measured up by your own works. That's the farthest thing from Peter's mind, and I hope you see that by this point in the letter. But what's in Peter's mind when he says they disobey the Word is that they have rejected the gospel. They've rejected the good news. They stumble because they disobey the Word. If a person truly seeks to understand and submit to Scripture and what it teaches about Christ and the gospel message that's contained within, is there going to be any stumbling if that person truly wants to know and understand and obey? No. In, his, in the Beatitudes that Jesus gave us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's the promise that follows? They will be filled. They'll be satisfied. They'll be given. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. And so if you approach the gospel, if you approach God, if you approach His Word with this understanding, this disposition, this mindset of, I want to serve my Creator. I want to follow Him. I want to love Him. I want to know Him. You will have a relationship with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will be no stumbling. You won't trip over anything, but you'll be brought in. So that's the fourth thing. They reject Him, they stumble over Him, they're offended by Him, they're disobedient to the Word, and you see the last thing, it's the last part of verse 8. Oh boy, they were destined to do this. This is a tough one. (laughs) Okay, and there are layers to the difficulty. It's an exegetical difficulty, it's a moral difficulty, it's just being human difficulty. We have lots of difficulties with this. But those who reject Christ were destined to reject Christ. That's what our text is saying. So let's think about this, and so I can give you bad dreams tonight, okay? They are appointed for this or destined to this. This is listed as the cause of their stumbling. Just like it says that they stumble because they disobey the Word, you could read it, they stumble because they were destined to stumble. God is the one who put the obstacle there, isn't he? He knew full well how they were going to respond, and he knew full well those who would be his own and be parts of the church being built up as living stones. He sent the cornerstone. He sent the obstacle. This is God's doing. And the word for destined or appoint, whatever your translation says there, it just it means to ordain. It means to prepare. It means to plan. It means literally, quite literally, to destine. And we see this concept in other places. And because we have time, let's turn there. Keep your finger here and go back to the book of Acts, chapter 2, all the way back to Acts chapter 2, because this is also Peter speaking. Acts wasn't written by Peter. It was written by Luke. But in Acts chapter 2, Luke is recording a sermon preached by our author, Peter. Acts chapter 2, and let's look, boy, we could look at so much of this, but let's look at 22 to 24. Who would read that for us? Acts 2, 22 to 24. Okay, go ahead, Andy. All right, look at verse 23 and tell me, why Jesus died. 
okay? And, okay, and they carried it out too, didn't they? We find the both and paradox all throughout the scriptures. We see it here, and it's most clearly felt or most, not clearly, you can't clearly feel something. It's most um, deeply felt, I guess, when it comes to the idea of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We wrestle with it all the time in a variety of passages, okay? We're we're never going to reach a very satisfactory conclusion, so just accept that. Um, But we see that Jesus would not have been killed if it was not God's predetermined plan. Wouldn't have happened. Yet, they also carried it out, didn't they? He, said, you, he says right there, you killed him. But he also says it was God's predetermined plan. It's a both and that's happening. An amazing thought. And we see it again in 1 Corinthians. We looked at this quite a long time ago in the sermon series. Turn forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Six to eight. Logan, you want to get this one since you didn't get the last one? All right. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Same exact idea going on here. God decreed this wisdom, it's His wisdom, and He decreed it for who? Yeah, and who is us in the context of this letter? Yeah, believers, Christians. He had decreed it before the ages, before time, for our glory. And then He goes on to say in verse 8 that the rulers of this age, they don't understand this. So this wisdom wasn't decreed for their glory, was it? (laughs) Because if they would have understood it, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Again, the responsibility for the crucifixion put on them, and yet the responsibility for who gets the wisdom, and that's on God. This is wild stuff. And so Peter, in this very same vein, in our text tonight, He says, they stumble over Christ because they were destined to do this. Yours might say this was their fate. They were appointed to this doom, I think is what the New American Standard says, which is an amazing uh, rendering. The word for fate or doom is not in the Greek. It just says to this they were appointed. Uh, That's why it's in italics in the New American Standard. But it it sounds cooler when it says to this doom they were appointed. Uh, but, it, but it's, important, and it's important as we, you know, kind of just settle with, okay, we're not God, we're never going to fully understand this. It's important that we recognize it is what it is, too, and just accept it. This is what the Scripture says. They were destined to do it. And you're never going to, again, you're never going to get to a satisfactory point emotionally, mentally on any of that. But you can at least accept the Word of God for what it says. And you can also have this hope. As Peter was writing this and saying, these people in the world who stumble over Christ and they're destined to stumble, he wasn't seeing it, I don't think, as a final stumbling. Look down just a few verses to verse 12. We're going to cover this real soon. 
Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter saw the possibility for repentance in their lives, didn't he? He didn't see, okay, you've got the church and the world, everyone's locked in from this point forward and no one, can, no one else can get saved. He didn't see it that way. He had this understanding that they, they could repent, they could be saved. And it's just absolutely true, isn't it, that we have no certainty with anybody's final destiny? <laughs> that is for God alone. God alone ultimately condemns or exalts. We don't have His certainty on this. So we just rest with this very strong language that certain people were destined to stumble. Very strong, but we just rest in it. It's okay to not understand got a little bit of time. Any thoughts or questions to finish off here? Logan. Well, when it comes to salvation, no. Christians don't stumble because the reason they're Christians is because they didn't stumble because God brought them into the family of God, right? And they saw Jesus for who he is, the cornerstone, and they're being built on him. When it comes to sanctification, you know, the phrase that we started off tonight with in verse 4, um, coming to Him, or as you come to Him, uh, <laughs> do we come to Him perfectly and as often as we should? <laughs> no, we don't. So in that sense, Logan, uh, yeah, I agree with you, that as believers, <laughs> as those who have been saved, and who have been united to Christ by faith. There is an aspect, of course, where we do stumble in this life, right? Uh, you think of Galatians 6.1, if any of you is caught in a trespass, he who is spiritual come and restore such one a spirit of gentleness. Okay, so yeah, you can get caught in a trespass. You can stumble, all that stuff. But when it comes to salvation, the initial uniting to Christ, uh, that's the heartbreak right there. You either stumble or you embrace. No in between. Andy. That's good. Good, good self-awareness, Andy. <laughs> yeah. But it's, but it's all about Him holding on to us, isn't it? Like the song we sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. Or that older, I don't know how old, Him, lifted right from the words of Scripture, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able. People who can sing. <laughs> to keep that which is entrusted unto Him against that day. Something like that. Yeah. That's a King James uh, rendering of the hymn. But yeah, He is the one who is able. And um, think of Philippians 1.6. God is going to complete what he has started. And so, yeah, we rest in that. Mr. Carroll. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 
Yes. Who, yeah, whose responsibility, who's responsible for their destruction? The unbeliever. The unbeliever is responsible for his own destruction, right? Never in Scripture is God presented as the author of sin. Never in Scripture is God presented as the one responsible for people rejecting Christ and rebelling against His holy command. But then we have this really strong language in this verse, which makes it really hard to <laughs> wrap your mind around, and you won't be able to, okay? But yeah, I mean, it makes me think of a verse I so often think of, 1 John 3.23, this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. And the world rejects that, as they were destined to do. Okay, well, let's stop there. Let me pray for us, and then we'll scatter. Lord, thank you again for this evening and for our time to just hear from your sweet word and to be built up in our faith because of your work in us and through us and around us. Lord, we ask that as we take the encouragement we've received from you tonight, that we would be a blessing to those in our homes, we'd be a blessing to our neighbors, we'd be a blessing to anybody that you make our path cross with, um, that we would shine brightly as Jesus is in us, shining through us, that we'd make much of him in a world that does reject you utterly and totally and thoroughly. Cause us to just be a, a witness because of our faith and our love for one another, that you've worked in us for your own glory. We praise your most holy name in the name of Lord Jesus. Amen.